<laughs> the topic of Christmas. Hey, <laughs> um, uh, I want to tell you guys, um, one of the things, I'm very, really glad, I mean, I'm really glad to be here. I, I had, um, this past week, coming out of, out of Thanksgiving, I was, um, like a lot of you, um, I was feeling a little bit, like, a little bit run down, like I was fine through Thanksgiving, and then that week, I kind of, last Sunday that I was teaching, I'm like, I think I might be kind of getting sick, and I came home, I went home, and it was like, I can't move. Like, I just had that, anybody just recently, kind of, you, you were kind of, you, people in your family got a little under the weather, a little bit, yeah, okay, all of you guys who post that on Facebook, what is wrong with you? Why do you do that? There are like there are certain people who are like, my kids are sick. There's barf everywhere. You know, it's like <laughs> a lot of things you can just you know, hey, we're not feeling so good. That we're that's all that's all we need. But you detailing the number of times you got up in the night to take care of your sick kids and stuff, all that is is telling us there's a nightmare coming down the road for us too. Because we're all wondering how much time do we spend with that person? I'm going. Let's see, we were at church. Did I hug that person or shake their hand or high-five their kid? Or did I, oh my, oh my gosh, it's, I, we're going to have the same scenario. So if you're sick, you know, just feel free. We just let people know we're not feeling good. It's all we need on Facebook. Don't go through the detail telling everybody how much pain and sorrow and suffering you're in with that. If something else, great, we can all pray for you. But th- I mean, like, dude, that's just torture for everybody else. But um, I'm glad, I, felt, I felt like Friday, I kicked it. I feel like I'm back. I'm ready to be here. I'm super excited about today's message. Before we do that, though... I want to tell you guys, every year what we want to do is challenge our church community to read through the Bible. And um, every year it's met with like, we're excited. And then we kind of try to walk through it. And about February, people are like, yeah, there's other things to read too and television to watch. I mean, I get it. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to do this annual read through the Bible, but I want to do it a little differently than we have in the past. I want to give you some permission. First is this. Um, we're going to read a, a version of the Bible. It's a paraphrase of the Bible by a guy named Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson is a pastor who is incredibly smart. And the story goes that he was teaching his own people about, um, he was going through a study in Galatians. And he's teaching his people about um, what the Bible actually says. And he's reading from the Greek and trying to help people understand, because the Bible, the New Testament's written in Greek. He's trying to help people understand what's being said by capturing the art and beauty of the, of the original language. And he's like, I just want to teach my people, at least a few of them, how to read Greek. That was his idea. And he goes, this is just, this is just so frustrating. So his wife actually is the one who said, why don't you just write the way, it's suppo- the way it sounds and update it for, this, for the 21st century. Then it will be the late 20th century. Update it so that people can understand it with the subtlety and the movement of all the stuff of the language that's kind of lost in our, in our raw sort of literal English translations. He's like, okay. So this is a guy who teaches every week. There's probably 100 pastors in, the, in like America who literally open up their Bible, and it's Greek. He's one of them. And this is the guy who does, I mean, so he, what he did is he said, let's make this, let's try to capture the heart of what's intended for the original audience, and he created a whole, the whole Bible is, you know, it's his own paraphrase of this stuff. Now, it's brilliant. Now, most Bible translations, they are formed by committees of people and all kinds of stuff. That's why it's r- roughly called a paraphrase. But to read it side by side with some of the more literal translations and even some of the translations we use. We, you know, in here we use the NIV, but if that matters to you, it doesn't matter. But well, this we typically use on the weekend. But this, is, this, this paraphrase of the Bible, this version of the Bible, is broken up into chunks. And here's how it's broken up. Every day you'll read something from the Hebrew Bible, what's called the Old Testament. you read something from the New Testament, which is Jesus' life and ministry in the early church. And then you'll also read something from the Psalms and the Proverbs every day. That's how it's broken up. So you get a little bit of reading all over the place. Now, it's broken up by day, like there's 365 days of it in here. And um, here's what I want to let you know. Some of you will get through like, you'll be like January 4th. You'll be like, this is the best. 
And like by January, you know, 7, 8, 9, 10, you're like, ah, oh, I'm like two days behind and now I have to read 118 chapters and I can't catch up and I don't know what I'm supposed to do and I'm a giant failure. Here's the deal. Here's my commitment to you. We will not hammer you with guilt about this. We'll not ask how many days you've missed in the year. We won't ask you to write a report on every day and email it to us. There's no, look, here's the deal. This is to help you. I believe God's word is critical for us to understanding who God is. It is God revealing himself to us through his word. There are other ways he reveals himself, but this is one of the best ways. And if you want to get a better picture of who God is, read his word. Now, if you miss a day, just start where the next day. Just start wherever the date on the calendar is and read that day. If you're like, I can't read all that stuff. I don't know how to read that well. I, I, you know, I barely passed fifth grade. I get it. Just read only one section of it. But just try to get God's word into your life. Make that a rhythm of your life. And for those of you who are like, that's so beneath me, I read 17 chapters a day, and I actually read them in Hebrew and Greek, whatever. Then you journal more. Tell us all. You plan a church, okay? We're excited about you too, all right? So these are for sale at our little bookstore out there. Um, all of the money that comes from this goes into furthering the outreach projects that we have, our local partnerships with the poor and needy. So, so it's like, you know, this is just, this is for you to be able to do that. Um, you know, I recommend if you're going to give this as a gift to like someone who's under 20-something, make sure you put a gift card to like iTunes in there as well, because they'll be like, oh, great, it's a Bible. Oh, iTunes. Oh, thank you. Like, just to help you out there. All right? <clears throat> Those of us who are older will recognize the value inherently, but maybe not so much who are younger. All right? So, uh, everybody cool with that? Cool? Okay, good. Expect, um, expect great things for us reading through the Bible together. Um, uh, we are in our series, which has been so cleverly changed from an outsider's guide to Jesus to now an outsider guide to Christmas, because that is, it's way different now than what we were doing before. So it's way different. Um, but we're walking through this book of Luke. <clears throat> Luke is a gospel. It's his account of Jesus' life and ministry, where he's a guy who's writing after Jesus. He's writing, you know, 10, 20, 30 years after Jesus going, wait, wait, wait a second. I've heard lots of stuff about Jesus. Is this stuff really for real? And all he's kind of would be, essentially, he'd be sort of a, a grandkid or a, or a nephew of people who actually walked with and talked with Jesus. So he interviews a bunch of people and creates an account of Jesus' life and ministry. And it's perfect for people who are investigating Jesus, who are like, I'm not sure about him. Who is he? Because Luke's really thorough in his account of Jesus' life and ministry. And so that's where we are. I'm very excited about it, particularly as it pertains to Christmas. So let's do this. Let's pray together, and then we will, we'll jump into today's message, all right? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for you. We're grateful that we get to come in here. We get grateful that no matter how it is that we have come into here, whether we've come in here excited, energetic, we've come in here, you know, well, all of us are somewhat cold, but uh, Lord, feeling like we have nothing left. Um, we know that you receive us with open arms, and we're grateful for that, Jesus. Father, for those of us who are investigating you, would you reveal yourself in powerful and unmistakable ways? Jesus, as we, um, as we think about all of the activity as it, it continues to increase around us and all of the stuff that we're leading up to as we get to Christmas. Um, Jesus, we, um, we ask this would be a place, at least for a moment, um, that we would call sanctuary, that we would call safety, relief, refuge. That there's so much to be caught up in in the rest of the world and that we would receive it just for a moment, the sanctuary of stillness from you. Ultimately, Father, not so that we would just retreat into here and hide out, but that we would receive the sanctuary of your presence in and, our lives, in, in and through our lives, that we might be able to live it out, to be a sanctuary for people, to be one who offers refuge, to see that as part of our calling in the world. And so, Father, to orient ourselves toward that life, we take a moment, as is our custom, just to pause and ask you to speak, Holy Spirit, to, directly to us, to our soul.
Father, we're confident in the work that you do, even when we don't understand it. We pray that amid everything else that um, would vie for our attention, we would see that it is you that we need and that we seek. And it is you who freely comes to us and gives to us himself that we might have life. We're grateful. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Um, if you want to follow along with us on the outline that came in your bulletin, you can pull that out and take a look at it. If you want to follow along in your own Bible, great. Or in whatever digital version of the Bible you have as well, great. As, you know, if you're like, I just want to look at the screen. I don't even look at your face. I get it. It'll be on, all the scripture will be on the screen as well. Whatever helps you follow along. But um, I, was, uh, I was, all of the, the research of, the, of all of Black Friday and that weekend is all in. And there's varying degrees of things. I was looking at some stuff this week, talking with our staff. I was like, what were the things that people bought most of? Um, and it's amazing to find this stuff out. And I don't know if this is a definitive list. It's the one I found. And if it's not accurate, it's just an illustration, lighten up. Okay, uh, here we go. Here are, the, here are the eight most purchased things in reverse order from eight to number one over the Black Friday all the way through um, Cyber Monday weekend. Here's what, here's what they are. Uh, number eight is a Nexus 7 tablet. Number seven is Beats by Dre headphones. I don't know how old you have to be before you, I mean, I suppose if you're over high school students, yes. I mean, you guys probably could own those, but if I'm wearing Beats by Dre, you'd probably be like, I don't know, probably not. Okay. Um, Number six was actually an Xbox 360. The old version of the Xbox was, was on like a fire sale. The iPad 2, strangely enough. Uh, number five. Number four, a North Face jacket. Number three. Did, did the last three are like completely off. The, all of those seem like they make sense to me. Number three was a Michael Kors watch. Okay. Never. I have no idea what that is. I'm sticking with Casio. Um, number two is a Coach handbag. All the women went, yes. The guys were like, yeah, Adidas, coach bag. Coach, put your stuff in there, coach your kids. Yeah. yeah. yeah take out a loan to buy one of these coach bags. Uh, and then lastly, number one thing, Ugg boots. It even sounds like ugly. It has the word Ugg. I mean, how else do you get close? How many of you guys bought Ugg boots? Just out of curiosity. Look at that. It's sweeping the nation. There you go. That's all right. We don't think you're an ugly person, but... I don't know. Okay, anyway, um, there are so many things people wanted. There are p- things people have been clamoring for. We've heard all the news about it and people worried about, are they going to sell enough over Cyber Monday to make up for what they didn't get on Black Friday? I mean, all that stuff. But there's all these things people want. And um, this is this couple weeks ago, um, my family and I are walking out of the, out of the church service and we're, um, we're generally, you know, we're not the last people to leave. There are volunteers and there are, you know, tech people that are here longer than, than I am, people shutting stuff down and you know, if you want to help do that, great. But, you know, I'm, I'm close to the end of the last people that are here. And we're walking out, and I have my, my three kids, and Amanda and I are walking out, and my youngest is um, five, my oldest is almost ten, and then my, my daughter, um, Molly, is uh, a seven. And so my youngest is, you know, he's starting to have this five years old. So you have the, like, low blood sugar, tired, overstimulated parents know where this is going. Um, and he starts to, like, he's starting to get pretty hungry. And they, the kids know, my kids know where, like, all the snacks are in the building. Like, if you, they know where, they, they don't know where lots of stuff is, but they know where the snacks are. And so they can tell you where they all are. And so they've tried all the different places, and they're like, Dad, Dad, we're so hungry, my two boys say. We're so hungry. Can we get something to eat? And I go, yeah, you guys can go, go get something to eat if you want. But, you know, um, my, my youngest is like, I, Dad, I really want Cheez-Its. I'm like, okay, go get some, I don't know, whatever you, if you can find them, great. We're walking out, though. I'm not unlocking a door or whatever, and, you know, they're like, but you have the keys. I'm like, I don't know. Lied to my child. Um, I don't know where they are. It's weird. I don't, your mom has them or something. I don't know. But anyway, so they, they're running around trying to find stuff. They get to the upper closet. There's a closet up there, and they're like, 
the door's locked, and you just hear this, like, scream. It was like someone found a dead cat there. I mean, it was like, ah! My five-year-old is screaming. It's locked! It's locked! He's screaming. He runs down. I'm like, okay, buddy, we got to go. And he's like, no, no! I'm like, we got to go. And he's like, I want Cheez-Its! And I'm like, you can't, buddy, we, we got to go. Now, I'm so thankful. <laughs> At this point, all of you are gone, so you don't see my children. Because I know you're like, wow, really? Pastor is, can't control his own children. <laughs> Disgraceful. But anyway, so no, I can't control them. I know you can, but I can't control my own kids. So... We're walking out, and he's starting to, and, it's, and it, turns in, it turns into not just I want Cheez-Its. It turns into very quickly, we, it escalates from like a five-year-old version of I'm hungry. And by the way, you know, the way, of course, we handle in church world, the way we handle kids who are low on blood sugar and need something to eat and all that stuff, we give them a donut. <laughs> it's like gas on the fire, right? And so he's like, he's like fine for about three minutes, and then it just all erupts at a whole other level, you know, the next time. And so he's screaming and yelling, I want Cheez-Its, I want Cheez-Its. He's stomping his feet like he was two. I mean, literally just cannot get a hold of himself. And Amanda, my wife, starts cracking up. I'm like, are you insane? You know, like, what are you doing? And she's like, she's like, I'm not kidding you. Does it not sound like he's saying, I want Jesus? (laughs) So... He's going, I want Cheez-Its, I want Cheez-Its. And he's just screaming, so I start laughing. I want Jesus, is what it sounds like. I want Jesus, over and over and over again. And, and my, 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 ten, my nine-year-old hears it too, and he starts cracking up, and he starts kind of egging him on. Do you really want Jesus? Yeah, I want Jesus, I want Je-. I mean, just, I mean, the full-blown tantrum, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's like, it was an explosion of I want Jesus. And now it's like, now once, once I hear that, I'm cracking up, and I'm like, yeah, you know, my kids walk out of church, and they're like, I want Jesus. What do your kids say? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> you know, so he's just screaming this, and we're walking out to our car. And, and here's, you know, it's ultimately we have to, like, calm him down. I think we actually had to stop the car on the way home, like, you have to calm down. We will get food. Relax. And he's like, I, just nothing. It's just n- nothing but Jesus would do, okay? <laughs> now, it raises the question, especially coming out of this, you know, Black Friday purchase, get as much as we can kind of scenario, it raises the question for us about what is it that I really, really want? And if I got everything, if I got Ugg boots and Beats by Dre headphones and a Michael Kors watch, would that be enough? Of all the things that we have, all the things that we can possess, own, take, whatever it is, is that if I really got all of it, if I got everything I ever wanted, would it be enough? Would it really be enough? You know, here's this story we're walking into. We're in this, you know, we're in the second chapter of Luke. We've been wandering up to and through this story of Christmas as it's sort of already beginning to unfold. And the question still is, is, is that what I want? And if I, if I got it, would it be enough? Would it, would it really be enough? And it's the same question people have wrestled with since the first century. And if you want to follow along, we're in Luke chapter 2, verse, 20, um, verse 21. says this. This is Jesus being presented at the temple. Remember, they've already had, I should say this too, just to back up a little bit. They've already, Mary has had a visit with the angel telling her, you're going to have a, a son and it's not, your husband's not going to be the father. The Holy Spirit is going to be the father. And, you know, it's going to create all kinds of controversy and weirdness for you. You've got to deal with it. They've been to their own house. Their house didn't make enough room for them. They had to sleep with the animals. All that kind of stuff. And now we get to this place where the baby's born. This, it's eight, day, eight days after his birth. And they have to present him um, to be circumcised and all kinds of stuff. So here it is, verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, his name was Jesus. The name the angel uh, had given him before he was conceived. 
Now, here's a couple things you got to know. First is this. Um, the, on the eighth day, circumcise the child. This is according to what the scriptures teach for people who belong to Jesus. His covenant community called the Jews or, you know, previously the Israelites or the Hebrew people. These people all belong as part of God's covenant community. That means they have a promised relationship with each other. And the marker of that covenant relationship goes all the way back to this guy Abraham, who God said, hey, I'm going to make you a father of many nations, and all of your descendants are going to, you know, they're going to, they're going to belong to me as my people, and I'm going to bless you and bless them. And the way we're going to mark that we belong in our little community here is this circumcision. And Abraham said, what, why did Noah just get a, a rainbow? To mark that membership and being together. <laughs> can we do that again? Can we have a special handshake? Is there something else we could do besides that? No, 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 Abraham, this is what you get. And it marks you as belonging to the covenant community. Okay, so that's where they are. And they're going now to have Jesus marked as part of the covenant community. And he's going to be named. His name is going to be Jesus. Now, Luke pays a lot of attention to the names people are given in all of it. He wrote, you know, this Gospel of Luke... And then he wrote this other giant volume called Acts of the Apostles. And so those two things, actually, those, this book, um, the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, actually comprises most of what we know as the New Testament, the story and life of Jesus and the early church, in terms of actual volume of, of content. But what you see is, oh, throughout all of that, you get over and over again that Luke pays particular attention to the way people are named. When people's names change, how they're named initially, all kinds of stuff. And one of the things you catch here is that there's this baby who is it's reiterated over and over again. His name is Jesus. Now, the name Jesus isn't just like, a, it's not like just a random name. The name Jesus means God rescues. It means God rescues. And more literally, it means Yahweh, which is the covenant name for God with his people. Yahweh is Salvation is literally how it translates. It translates, um, the, the word is Yeshua or Yahshua. You might notice the word Joshua, Joshua is how it's also sometimes translated. But it's the word Yeshua. God is our rescue. God will rescue us. Now, the question is, what would, what would Jesus, God rescues, Yeshua, what, what exactly would he be rescuing people from? You see, the history of the Jews, the history of these people is one of oppression. The story of the Bible is one in which, the, the, particularly the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, has them constantly being in captivity or in exile. They're in uh, slavery in Egypt. They're rescued out of, out of captivity and exile and into a new freedom. And then they're overrun by the Assyrians. And then they're overrun by the Babylonians. And now they're in this other place, presently in the first century. They're overrun and occupied by another group of people who intends to oppress them, the Romans. And they're as powerful as any empire ever. And they are, these people are longing for an end to captivity and they want freedom. And there's this baby born whose name is God rescues. Yahweh is salvation. Now, they're all imagining God's promised future to them. All these people are like, we're waiting for the day when God's going to make good on his promises. So what I want to do is this. I'm going to blaze through a little bit of some of those promises. And there are way more than this. But they're relevant because they're all of the things that people are hoping for at the time of the first century. So just give you a sense. Here's what it says in Isaiah 49. It's on your outline and it'll be on the screen too. But here's what it says. Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains. In other words, this is great news. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. But Zion said, Zion is like the people and land that belong to God. Um, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. In other words, We know we belong to God, but clearly we're hearing the good news, but we don't know where God is. 
We feel as though we've been abandoned by him and we need him is the cry of the people who belong to God. Zion is what that is. And the belief is also that when God returns to Zion, this land, this place, and these people, then he'll make everything right. He'll be presented at the temple to make everything right. Verse 15 and 16. Uh, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. Now what's being said here is a mother could never forget this. And how much even more so would God not forget us? See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. You're waiting and wondering, is God going to rescue? And no, I have not forgotten you people. You're still my people and I have not forgotten you. I could never forget you because I love you and care about you. It's giving down to Isaiah 52. Verse 8. Listen, your watchmen will lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, there it is again, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem, which means set free from captivity. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Or all the ends of the earth will see the Yeshua of our God. Now, inside of all the nations is this. The, the word all nations in, in the Greek is the word ethnics, which is where we get words like ethnos or you know, ethnic or whatever. It means all of the people of the world. Sometimes that's a word translated as Gentiles. In other words, whatever God's going to do isn't going to be just for some people. It's going to be for the whole world. The expectation is that God will come in and begin, as soon as he returns to Zion, his own people, his own place, the temple, all of that, when he returns there, everything will be made right. Isaiah 61. Uh, this is, this, Luke quotes this, or Jesus quotes this in Luke chapter 4. We'll get to that in a little while. But here's what he says. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if you're someone who is in captivity and you feel oppressed and you are overwhelmed, then this kind of stuff is like, man, I am dying for this to happen. I have experienced the oppression of those in power and I need God's powerful rescue to come to my aid. Now, what everyone believes is, who reads this kind of stuff, isn't that what what God's going to do is come back to us and give us our own kind of private experience of spirituality with him. Individual kind of private experience of spirituality. That's not what God, Jesus, the person who comes, by the way, the person who's going to bring about this whole God reordering of the whole world, the public sphere and the private sphere, everything, is a person called the anointed one. The anointed one, is a word in Hebrew, that's the word Messiah. In Greek, it's the word Christ. Now, there is a person who is going to usher in this world-altering kind of thing. And people believe that person is going to come, and it will be powerful, and it will be dramatic, and it will be, uh, it w- it will be something that they, is unmistakable and unmissable. That's what people are hoping for. And there's this baby Yeshua, God saves, God rescues, born in a barn to a poor couple under the kind of the haze of scandal that surrounds them. And his name, you know, this baby, Jesus, is heralded as this person. Here's what sort of happens. We'll kind of catch up to it in a second. Luke 2, 22. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem, meaning Jesus, to present him to the Lord. 
As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of our Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now we're going to spend more time on this particular thing next week. There's something kind of happening here. It's pretty cool. But here's what's happening. People are, are, this is part of the relationship of God and his covenant relationship with his people is, when you have your firstborn son has to be presented at the temple. And then there is, um, after he's circumcised, he has to be presented in the temple. There's 33 days separating out from when the, the child is circumcised and when he's presented in the temple. And the reason, or not presented, yeah, when he's presented in the temple. And here's the other thing. A woman is ritually un- unclean from the moment of that birth until the 41st day after that birth. It means she cannot participate in the religious life of the people for 40 days. At the 41st day, she comes to the temple and presents uh, her baby and also does this other thing where she is also, uh, goes through a little purification ritual. And part of that ritual is this. What everybody would do in the um, ancient world is they would bring, which you'll get here in a second, they would bring to, they'd bring to the priest an offering and go through a little purification rite. Now, what Luke is doing here is actually telling the story that these two people are really poor. He's just telling it in a very subtle and brilliant way. Because what he's citing here is the obligation of people who belong to God to present their kids and then also offer a sacrifice for purification. And here's what it says out of Leviticus, uh, chapter 12. When the days of her purification for a son or daughter are over, she is to bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or dove for a sin offering. Um, let's see. If she cannot afford a lamb, verse 8, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for her and she will be clean. Luke is saying, these two people showed up and they went to this place and they don't have a lamb. All they've got is a couple of birds. The temple area, by the way, is a massive area. It's, it's several, I mean, it's, it's like several football fields big, and it's a, it is the most sacred thing in the most sacred place in the world to these people. So here's what you have. If you can imagine this. All of, the, all of holiness radiates out from the very center of, of, um, of the temple. There is a holiest place, a most holy place, followed by a holy place, followed by um, the outer courts of, of you know, there's a court of women and a court of men and a court of Gentiles and this radiating out into the city of Jerusalem, into the whole land of Israel. And, you know, then you sort of get further and further out to the whole world. And everything that gets further and further from that center is less and less holy. The center of all things is at this center place, this temple. In fact, when people talk about it, the literal translation of this isn't that they went to Jerusalem, it's that they went up to Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem and the temple itself are at 2,500 feet above sea level. Everything in that area does go up to Jerusalem. But there's also a spiritual kind of topography here too as well, which is that no matter where you are, if you are going to Jerusalem, if you are going to the temple, it is always up. If we were on the summit of Mount Everest and we were going to the temple, we would speak about it like we're going up to Jerusalem. Whatever God's going to do, whatever great and mighty thing he's going to do, it has to do something with the temple, clearly. Because that is where all of, God is, all of God's people and all of his activity must be centered. So Joseph and Mary take their son and they bring their offering for Mary's purification rites. And it's a pigeon. And their son is 
this poor child born to these two kids in scandal. The area is this massive area. You can imagine there's all these people of varying degrees of importance who have brought their animals there. There's all kinds of activity. Priests are making sacrifices for them. There, people are making offerings. There's all kinds of stuff. It's probably it's three or four or five football fields in length. It's a huge area. And all these people are up there doing this kind of stuff. They're, and there's this one insignificant little couple with their baby presenting, being faithful to what God is, they're being faithful people, doing what God has commanded them to do. Presenting their own child uh, um, to God and then making this offering. And there's this small little moment happening. Verse 25. Um, now there, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, meaning the rescue or the, the, the comfort of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Throughout all of Luke's writing, it is the Holy Spirit that initiates Jesus' life and ministry here on earth. And it is the Holy Spirit whom he attributes um, all kinds of power to the, it's unmistakable, the power of the Holy Spirit to begin the early church. Luke has this thread in which we all, if you want to pay attention just to the, the way the Holy Spirit works in and through, the, um, in and through the, his, his writings, it's unbelievable to watch the Holy Spirit, how he works. But Luke is pretty clear to say, there's a whole bunch of religious activity happening, but let me focus on what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's got this guy's attention, this guy Simeon, and he's a righteous and devout person, and here's what he does. It had been revealed to him, meaning Simeon, by the Holy Spirit, that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. The Lord's Messiah is only used like three or four times in the Bible. Messiah, again, is the word anointed one. The Lord's Messiah is the one who's going to bring about all of this stuff, this hope for the future. And um, here's what it says. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought the child Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms. So here's presumably this old guy, because what he's been told is, you're not going to die until you see the anointed one, the Messiah. You're not going to see, you, you, you will live your life, no matter how, you know, but you'll, you can die only at that moment. And he's like, oh my gosh, this is the moment. And there's no fanfare, there's no Super Bowl halftime show, there's no big balloons, Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, there's none of that stuff. There's a, there's a couple, shrouded in scandal, who can't afford to make a proper offering. And Simeon, presumably again old, goes and takes this child, which is always kind of a little bit funny to me. Like, he's just like, can I hold your baby? And they're like, sure. I mean, like if it was an old man you don't know comes and takes your baby, I don't know how you would do that. Like, can I hold your baby? <laughs> no, go, go somewhere else. But Simeon has the magic touch, whatever it is, and he walks up and says, can I take your baby into my arms? And they say yes, which is always surprising to me. Because amid all of what's going on here, all of the activity and all of the, the animals and the priests and the travelers and the rituals and all of that stuff, amid everything else going on, there's a baby with this poor family and there they are, have come a long way. And, and it's kind of underwhelming. And Simeon says, above everything else, I want Jesus. All I want, all I could ever want, is Jesus. I want God's rescue, to be able to hold into my own hands God's rescue. It's all I want. I just want Jesus. Now why? I mean, this is so completely underwhelming. There's this poor couple. There's no, like I said, there's no fanfare. Why would he want this person? Look what he says about this person, Jesus. Verse 29. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised. Now he's quoting from Isaiah here, a bunch of different passages in Isaiah. 
Sovereign Lord, as you've promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, meaning I can die now. This is the greatest moment of my life. Everything else up to this point has been kind of, but now this is it. Everything else is downhill. This is unbelievable. This is the best moment of my life. I can die now. For my eyes have seen your salvation. My eyes have seen your Yeshua or Yahshua, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. There's all nations and the Gentiles again, the ethnos. And glory of your people, Israel. He says, holding this baby, the one who's going to rescue every, the one who's going to bring about God's rescue operation, the dramatic power of God and all of that, it's in this baby. This is all I want. I just want Jesus. The only thing I need, as he's quoting Isaiah, the same stuff we just read, and he's quoting Isaiah, and he's just going, this is the only thing I could have possibly wanted. I just want Jesus. I talked to a couple people this past week who I think it's people from our church community who have said to me, you know, I was here at the Thanksgiving, not the Thanksgiving service, Eve service, but the Thanksgiving weekend, the Black Friday, sort of that, that service. And, um, and uh, they were like, you know, I heard you talk about, you know, something. I'm, and i got to tell you, I'm a little bit upset. And I was like, what happened? Well, we're not totally upset. We're probably like 50-50 or 60-40 upset with you because you, you, had a, you kept repeating this phrase over and over again, which is, I don't need that. And they go, you just ruined our shopping. And I go, I don't know how to, um, I guess I'm sorry. I got, you know, and so they're like, so someone told me, and, I don't, and um, this woman says she's kind of a craft person, I guess. She says, I went to Hobby Lobby. <laughs> and I don't, I've never been in Hobby Lobby. I will never go in Hobby Lobby. <laughs> but she says, I went into this place, and I'm there trying to figure out all the stuff I can buy and stuff. Like, and she just got, kept hearing over and over, my get, over and over again in my head. I kept hearing, I don't need that. And she's like, it was so hard to finish what I needed to do there that day. I talked to someone last service who said, um, you know, we've been leasing cars and so on and so forth. And we, it was every couple of years we just lease a new car and, you know, and then it, our payments go up and whatever. And she said, we're there in the lot. We're going to lease a new car. And she says, I, we look at each other, this is a couple, and they say, let's just buy the car we already have instead of leasing a new one. She's like, we, I don't need that. She's like, I really wanted the new car. I mean, you could tell they're like, we did this, but I really wanted the other thing, you know, and I'm like, I, again, I don't know what to say. I talked to a guy who said, I went to Target on Black Friday, which, if you do that, you must hate yourself. I don't know how else to explain that. <laughs> but he's, he's going, he's got his, his shopping cart, and he's going through, and he says, you know, because what he really wants is one of those new Xboxes, the brand new Xbox One, and he's like, I really want one of those new Xboxes. It'd be unbelievable, you know, you know make me a better looking, more handsome, you know, more talented, generous person. I know if I had that, I'd be, you know. And so he's in the store, and he goes, I know, you know, they're, they're sold out everywhere. So he goes, if they're here, and there's what well, that will be God's sign to me. <laughs> and I'm supposed to have an Xbox. So wandering around the store, goes to the, um, goes to the electronics section, says, do you guys have any more Xboxes? And they say, oh, yeah, we have two left. And he goes, must be the Lord. So he takes it, <laughs> puts it in his, uh, in his uh, shopping cart, is wandering around, and he says for the next 30 minutes, he's just gripped with agony. Like, oh, man. Do I really need this? Do I need this? I need this. I think I need this. No, I don't need this. He texts all of his brothers, his friends. He's like, everybody tell me why I don't need this. Because I really want, do I really need And so all of his friends kind of say, you don't need this. Wait a little bit longer. It'll be cheaper. You don't need this. Wait, wait, wait. And so he's like, he walks back after walking around to the electronics department and gives them this. There's probably the only person in the history of the world who did this on, you know, <laughs> who took it out of their card and said, I don't 
need this. And they put it back on the shelf. Are you sure? Get it away from me. You know, like this kind of scenario. And he says, he goes, Jeff, I have to tell you, giving that thing back. <laughs> Man, the feeling I got was rage and anger and frustration and <laughs> hatred. I'm like, I'm so, <laughs> I'm so sorry, you know. I, I wish it was better for you. I wish it was, I, I, I don't know what to tell you. I was hoping you'd have a magical moment. The, you'd have the, the light would part and someone would just, you know, would have one with a bow on it on your car when you walked out. Like, oh, I said no, but oh, this is amazing. You know, like, didn't have that. I wish that happened for you. I'm sorry. My own son, we have, we have this pitiful, <laughs> I love our Christmas tree. It's a fake tree. I know some of you are like, oh, he said fake tree. <laughs> We're finding a new church. I know some of you guys, that's like the most immoral thing. We have this pitiful little Christmas tree, and I love it, and our dog every year bites it, and it, it, more of the lights that are pre on it. I know the lights are already pre-lit. It's awesome. We're really lazy. But every year, fewer and fewer lights actually work, you know, and I think it's great. And Amanda's like, me and Amanda and um, Scotty are in, Scotty's my five-year-old, we're in our, we're in our um, kitchen, and she's like, Jeff, I really want to get a new tree. I'm like, Man, we don't need a new tree. Our tree's fine. And uh, she's like, I really want to get a new tree. And I go, no, we don't need a tree. And Scotty goes, I mean, like, he had heard the message. You know, this, remember, this is the kid who's the screaming tantrum kid. <laughs> Something's happening there to him. It's awesome. But he goes, he goes, Mom, I don't want a new tree. I want the tree we already have. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Oh, you're the best child ever. How much candy can I give to you? You're my favorite of everybody. I mean, I just was like over the top. It was unbelievable. Now, what Simeon points to, he points in this question, which is so incredibly uncomfortable for us, which is, is Jesus enough? Is he enough? Is Jesus enough? Because what we're told all the time is that there is never going to be enough. Whatever you already have, it isn't enough. Whatever you just bought yesterday, it's old and probably should be replaced by a newer version tomorrow. It's never enough. And I have to tell you, one of the most bizarre things happens to me as I'm wrestling with this question. As a pastor, there's this weird temptation. You have to know what this is. This is and you, you wouldn't know this unless you had done this before. But there's this weird temptation for me, guys like me, which is to somehow make Jesus more compelling than he already is. Like every week I got to go, well, how can I make him more awesome than he already is? He's God. I don't know if you could get much more awesome than that. But every week that's the pressure I feel. How can I make him more than he already is? I wonder what it is that I could do to Jesus to give him more because he's not enough. Is Jesus enough? In my own life I struggle with this very real, I mean, is he enough in more ways than that, I'm going to cover this in a little bit too, but is there, is there something about Jesus that I go, he's just not quite enough? And then to even flip it again, if we were to say, if we got everything we ever wanted, all the stuff we could imagine, if we got all of it, the Beats by Dre headphones, the Nexus 7, and the Michael Kors watch, and whatever else, I don't know, if we got all that stuff, would it be enough anyway? Some of you, are here, you're investigating Jesus, you're checking out churches, you're not sure what you think about all this stuff. My guess is, is if for all of us, universally, if we got all of those things that we think we want, that we, that we so desperately think we want, if we got all those things, would it still answer the deepest questions of our soul? And regardless of what you think about Jesus, the world simply cannot give you enough to satisfy your soul. That is universally true. Which means there's a reason why you're here. You're investigating something about Jesus. And you want to know, is well, if the world's not enough, is, is he enough? Is Jesus enough? 
For some of us who have walked with Jesus for a while, we have that, we're haunted by that question that says, what if all we had was Jesus? Would that be enough? I don't know if he would be for me. Verse 36. There's two people that recognize Jesus on this day other than his parents who are at the temple. Verse 36 is this. There's also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. And she never left the temple but worshipped all day and night, fasting and praying. So here's this woman, an old woman. You have to understand this is really weird, the way this is described. Luke goes into exquisite detail to describe exactly how old she is. Which is kind of bizarre. He doesn't just say she's an old woman. He says, no, she's, she was married seven years. And then she spent 84 years uh, as a widow, is how some translations have it. But she spent the next chunk of her life all the way until she's 84, at least, without a husband. She's a widow. Now, there's a couple things you have to know. One is, the person with the least power in this particular society at this time is a widow. This is a person who is, who, whose testimony, because she's a woman, first of all, isn't permitted in court. This is a person, because she can't be trusted. This is a person who, if she has no one, she's not allowed to have a job because there's no man to speak for her anyways. But she couldn't have a job anyhow. If she doesn't have any sons, then she's literally locked into a life of destitution, hoping that someone else would have mercy on her. Over and over again, you see in the Bible that God has a particular kind of affinity for widows because they have no voice, and it is up to the people to care for them. Over and over and over again. Now, here is this woman, highlighted as a very old widow, but she's called something else. Now remember, her voice is going to be one that's like, well, she might be a smart old lady, but her voice is really not that credible. But she's called something else, too, which is a prophet. Now, prophets reveal things that are hidden. Prophets reveal things that are hidden. In other words, so we think about prophets, we think about people telling us about things that are yet to happen in the future. Those are hidden by time. But prophets are also people who speak about things that are presently in our midst, uh, are presently covered, hidden. Now, think about the irony of this. The two people that are announcing God's arrival, his rescue plan, God rescues Yeshua, that whole scenario, that, all that stuff is an old man, which would have had credibility, and this prophet who is a widow, who's supposed to have no voice. Now, in some ways, she's sort of like the secret decoder ring for the present reality of stuff going on. You know, like we all watch the Christmas story and, he, you know, Ralphie gets his decoder thing, key or whatever it is, and he listens to the radio broadcast of, the, of the, whatever the secret code is. Remember, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, if you haven't watched the Christmas story, turn your TV on. It's on every day, all the time, around this time. But, um, but there's, there's this moment, and the, the, worry about, the worry about the decoder, the worry about the deciphering, the revealing of hidden things, isn't that what you, you won't be able to understand what's revealed. That's not really the primary worry. Like, I don't understand what's being said. That's not the primary worry. What's actually the worry is, if you're able to actually uncover what's hidden, the question is, is it relevant? Does it matter? You remember in a Christmas story, he deciphers a special code. And then he's there, you know, writing it all down in the bathroom. And there he is, he finds it, gets the code. And what does it finally say? The magical secret message is, be sure to drink your Ovaltine. A crummy commercial, he says. Now, Anna is the one who is saying she has discovered who Jesus is. She understands who he is, and she says something. She reveals something hidden to people. Here's what she says, verse 38. 
Coming up, to them that, coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to, to all who were looking toward the redemption or the freedom of Jerusalem. Now, we don't know is this. Luke doesn't tell us how many people stopped to listen. I mean, there's all kinds of activity happening there. A lot of really important people are taking care of their sacrifices and making offerings and doing all this stuff. And there's all this busyness. And to those people who are really concerned, which would have presumably been most people, were really concerned about Jerusalem being set free from captivity, she spoke to them about this child, Yeshua, God rescued. And who would listen to her? There's all this activity. Again, the irony here is amazing. There's an old man moved by the Holy Spirit and this prophet, a woman named Anna, who's a widow, who's been widowed for a long time. They're the ones heralding in the coming of God's kingdom. This is what, that, that's the announcement, these guys. Where's the Super Bowl halftime show? Where's the big, where's the, there's, where's the explosions and the fire and the celebrity guests and everything else? It doesn't, there's none of that. Which means in all of what's going on here, among the, you know, the, the animals and the activity and all that stuff and whatever's going on, there's this, there's this anonymous couple and their baby. And what this means is, when Jesus shows up here, his big announcement, presentation at the temple, the Lord's return to Zion in the temple, at least his first time there, you could miss it. We could all miss it. Everybody could miss it. Simeon and Anna, amid all the activity, say, I want Jesus. <laughs> I want Jesus. I don't need any of this. I just want Jesus. There is so much that's going on, and I'm sure it's all important, it's really critical, but I just want Jesus. Now, Anna's telling people about those people who have been hoping for God's rescue. It says, to all who are looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. That means that there are some people who would say, I'm not looking forward to the, for the captivity to end. I might be benefiting from the way that the world already is, and I don't want it to, I don't want it to, I don't want it to end. And those people would be sort of clearly missing it. And he says, there's some people who would say, there's, God has got a rescue for your whole entire life. Do you want this? And they're saying, I don't want that rescue. Or I don't like the way he's doing it. Because here's Jesus, born to these poor kids, these poor, this poor little married couple. Is he enough? Is he really enough? Now, here's what I know. Here's how I know when Jesus isn't enough. Just for me, it's my own life. I don't know if this is true for you. I know he's not enough. When I have a fear about the future, that everything's going to collapse, that, I'll never be, that I won't be able to do or be able to, whatever, I, just, I have this, this fear about the future that is mostly catastrophic. Jesus isn't enough then. I live my own life with a weird anxiety about the present, like I'm somehow insufficient, that I can't do enough, that I, people are always upset at me, whatever. I live with that anxiety all the time because... Jesus isn't enough. There's a part of me, um, I know Jesus isn't enough, at least for me, when I start comparing myself with people who are around me. And start saying, well, if they can have that, whatever it might be, whether it's material or otherwise, why shouldn't I? And start, start a little comparison game with them. Because, you know, what I have now isn't enough because Jesus isn't enough. What does it look like for you? Where you work, 
There are probably corners that you could cut. There are people that can be lied to and cheated or whatever else. But I mean, not like egregious, terrible lies, but like a little bit that might get you to where you want to be. Because if you got to where you want to be, if you finally crossed that hurdle, then you can say Jesus is enough. But not, not yet. When you look around, for those of you who, in, in, even among your friends, you look around and you go, gosh, they, their houses are awesome. They're, what they have is unbelievable. Their marriage is different than mine. Their kids are different than mine. They can do things. If I had those things, then Jesus would be enough. If you're in school, high school student or college student, there's all kinds of situations in which you go, if I could be accepted by these people, if I could compromise a little bit here, then Jesus would be enough. Until I get that, then he's probably not enough. Because this is what I really need. What does it look like for you to say, this Christmas, I want Jesus. I want Jesus. Because he's enough. Let me do this. Why don't you close your eyes. And we're going to respond with some prayer and some singing. Close your eyes for just a moment. Let me ask you. As your eyes are closed and you're beginning just to kind of consider this a little bit. What does, it, what does it look like to really want Jesus? Where in your life are there things that are vying for your attention, that are trying to get you distracted, to make you believe that if you really had them, then you'd have enough? Where have you believed the lie that there isn't enough out there? It's somewhere out there. Enough could come to me if I only could have a few more things tangible or otherwise? What does it look like to see this underwhelming poor baby come to the temple presented by his own parents to say, he's enough and I want Jesus. For those of you wrestling with God or trying to figure out some of these things about who Jesus is, what does it look like to say, I want Jesus to reveal himself to me Whoever he is, I want to see him, and I want to meet him. I want Jesus. As we sing these songs, as we approach Christmas, would our prayer, our collective prayer set to music, would it be a prayer that says, I want Jesus because he's enough. So, Father, would you hear our prayer? Would you hear our hearts, and would you minister to us? And for those of us, Father, who need further prayer from other people, we have the courage to come forward, write those prayers down so our prayer team can pray for them. God, would you give to, uh, and even to, um, to be prayed for live right now, people would be praying for each other as they come forward and receive prayer. Because we need your rescue. Because we're hurting people, feeling captive, and we need your rescue, Jesus. So we give to you these songs and these words and our prayer. Amen.